listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, holy moly, we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, and scared to death when Amy says she has an idea because that usually spells trouble. Well, it doesn't always spell trouble, only sometimes. And I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover. And maybe even if you aren't, I'm a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict, and I treat a good yard sale like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish things like authors in the news, recent book to film adaptations, Weird stuff we've Googled while reading. And our TBR count. We're glad you're here. (laughs) Sometimes when people have experienced a loss or some kind of traumatic event, they're encouraged to write about it, which gives them an outlet for their feelings and a way to help them process the experience. Our guest this week, Willie Carver Jr., was the 2022 Kentucky Teacher of the Year, but he experienced loss and trauma when both he and his students were targeted because he is gay. He began putting the thoughts and feelings into poetic lines and stanzas. The book of poems that resulted, Gay Poems for Red States, helped him look back at prejudices he had experienced as a child living in rural Kentucky, as a gay man, and as a teacher offering a place of security for his students. The poetry served as an impetus for him to engage more as an activist, even testifying before the House Subcommittee on Civil Liberties and Civil Rights concerning the needs for rights for LGBTQ students and educators. Book Riot has named Gay Poems for Red States one of the best of the year. But first... So we want to remind you that coming up very soon on September 14th, 2023 is Give for Good Louisville. And we'd like to encourage you to support some of the awesome nonprofits in our area, uh, including Forward Radio, which broadcasts our show. But there are some others that relate to books. So Louisville Book Festival is one of the nonprofits participating in Give for Good Louisville and many others like the Louisville Free Public Library Foundation and Louisville Story Program is another. They've been guests on our show. And so we want to encourage you to encourage them via donations. Very good. And this is also a reminder that next Saturday, if you're here in Louisville, the Foxing Books Trivia Battle of the Book Clubs is on September 9th at 630 at Shippingport Brewery. Uh, And they're having a book sale that begins at 3 p.m., And you and I are both going to be there for a perks team. I think we have a few other listeners who want to join us. The book is Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. You have finished. I just started. And the first chapter was a real page turner. If you can say a first chapter is a page turner. It was propulsive. It was action packed. So I'm looking forward to it. If you are in the Louisville area and you would like to be on our uh, Perks Trivia team, just reach out on our uh, Facebook or Instagram, message us or go to our website and uh, we'll add you to the list. So I think we've covered all the, the important upcoming events, but Amy, you just had a, a, a recent event that took you up to New York City where 
kind of like Las Vegas. What happens in New York City stays in New York City. So I don't, you know, I know a little bit of what you're getting into. Don't tell me the illegal stuff, but but uh... <laughs> there was not a lot of illegal stuff. I don't think. I don't think. Who knows? Yes. So we went with our son and our son's girlfriend, and we stayed in Little Italy, right on the line between Little Italy and Chinatown, which was a lot of fun. My son, who is a chef, was really excited about seeing all the Chinatown markets because there were all kinds of fruits and vegetables and even like some meat products that he had never seen before. And he he wanted to buy all of them. Of course, you know, we couldn't buy all of them, but we did try a few. Well, he bought one called a durian, which kind of looks like a papaya, but it's spiky. because So it looks kind of dangerous, mm-hmm. which is totally something that my son would be interested in, anything that looks dangerous. But I have heard of durian. He had not. But basically, the inside is supposed to be creamy and sweet. Mm. But when you cut into it, it's supposed to have this horrendous smell, like rotting flesh oh so you have to get past the smell so he he was so curious about it he bought one and kept it in the fridge and it made the refrigerator smell not like rotting flesh just you know how sometimes cantaloupe when it's really ripe can like stink up your whole kitchen yeah like if you have it sitting on your counter it was kind of like that but in the fridge and so he took it back to work and he i said how did it go he said it was terrible but the people that we have working here from china loved it because Hmm. it is a an asian fruit so there were there was that uh he wanted to buy some mango steens he bought these little things that look kind of like grapes that were called long dons which I think are also an Asian thing. Another name for them is dragon eyes because you peel them and they look clear, but they have like the seed in the middle that kind of looks like a pupil of an eyeball. Anyway, it was interesting. I'm furiously Googling Googling all these. uh... (laughs) These fruits? Yeah. (laughs) But we went to several like rooftop bars uh, and got great views of the city. We went to a really bad off, 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 off Broadway show that was a spoof of Seinfeld but in musical form my son was picking all these things right like (laughs) I was not picking these things we spent a day in Brooklyn I'd never been to Brooklyn before that was a lot of fun so we had a good trip but yes I was exhausted because they kept me up way later than my usual bedtime they kept me up to like midnight Two nights in a row. The third night, I just couldn't. I just couldn't hang. You couldn't hang. Yeah, I just couldn't hang. It was. I'm like, who is this? Is this really Amy texting me? This could possibly be Amy because it's like almost eleven. I know. No, because normally my bedtime's like nine o'clock. Yeah. So when I came home, I was pretty useless for like a whole day. I just had nap basically to recover, and you know, we were getting like. 20,000 steps a day. Right, right. We did do the 9-11 Museum, which I'd never been to before. I'd seen the 9-11 Monument, not the museum. It affected me a lot more than I thought that it would. You know, it's been over 20 years. And you would think that, like, you know, your feelings about that would lessen, you know, over time. But going into that 9-11 Museum brought it all back. They have, you know, lots of pieces of the building, pieces of the plane, pieces of fire engines and things. But the thing that initially got me where it brought it all back was they were showing a clip of the Today Show on September 11th. Of as it was time, happening. As it was happening. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember watching that. That's where I was when I heard about it. I was in my home folding laundry with my two-year-old son 
sitting on the bed next to me and watching that. And all of a sudden it was like, I was right there again. It's a, it's funny how things like that, just the, like a television clip mm-hmm. can do that. And then there were several exhibits that just were emotionally exhausting. Um, and so I wasn't even able to do the whole museum. I'm glad I went, but if you go, be prepared, especially if you live through it. Like my son, he doesn't remember anything about it. So I, I think, you know, for the younger generation, it's not that it's not important. I just think, you know, they don't remember it. But right. if you live through it, it's it's something. Yeah. I have students so. ask me, they'll ask questions about it and they don't get it. It's And I was here in Louisville, Kentucky teaching when it happened. And I can't imagine living in New York and, you yeah. know, being president of of New York and going to that museum and, and what that experience has yeah. to be like for them. So here is a travel tip, though. If you go to New York City and you think, I want to see the Statue of Liberty, here is my advice. Do not go on the tour unless you're really, really into Statue of Liberty, but you can't go up in it anymore. And it's really just, you know, an island with the statue on it. I'm sure that there is like a little museum or something, but it's kind of costly and it takes many hours to do this tour. What I recommend is taking a free Staten Island ferry from Manhattan over to Staten Island and back. And it takes you right in front of the Statue of Liberty so you can get all of your pictures that you want. And it's free. It's one of the last free things <laughs> in New York City. And to me, it was perfect. You had good weather? We did have good weather. Awesome. Yeah, but it's covered. So even if you don't have good weather, you're still covered. I mean, maybe your pictures are not going to be you know, quite as good. That's my recommendation. Very good. Very good. Okay. Well, I recommend that we get started on our conversation with Willie Carver. What do you think? I think that's the perfect recommendation. We're excited to have Willie Carver here with us. He is at the University of Kentucky and found a quiet spot where he can spend a little bit of his day chatting with us. Willie, we're so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I saw you uh, at Carmichael's Bookstore do an author reading from your new book of poetry called Gay Poems for Red States. It was really fun to to hear you present some of your poems. And it's your first collection of poetry. And it came after sort of a traumatic experience for you in your life and maybe traumatic for, you know, the community of students that you were, were teaching with. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I'm a gay man who works in the South in the United States. So it was never easy to be a teacher, but it was doable. And I kind of just had this mentality that I would go in every day and fight the good fight and protect the kids who needed protecting, which is a lot of them. Um, and that was pretty much my life. I was nominated Kentucky Teacher of the Year. And one of my students actually laughed out loud. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, oh, like they're going to let some big gay Appalachian be Teacher of the Year. (laughs) But after she said it, I was sort of reflecting and I said, she's talking about herself. She's not talking about me. And, you know, we all laugh, but there was other side to that laughter. So I was like, okay, I have to actually apply. (laughs) And I decided, okay, I'm not actually going to win, but I can use this as a moment to shine a light on my students and let them see at the state level what's happening here. Because these students were fantastic. I had a 40-person LGBTQ affirming club. They were actually dedicated to positive systemic change. So they cleaned parks. They taught 
taught themselves history. They raised money for mental health awareness. They did all kinds of advocacy. They were featured in Time Magazine. Wow. Of course, the school never talked about that, except mm. one teacher who made fun of the kids for it. So I thought this will be a moment for the state to see what's happening. And then somehow I won. <laughs> and In 2022, right? You were named Kentucky Teacher of the Year. Yes. That's so pretty then, exciting. Yeah. I mean, so out of 40,000 teachers, it's overwhelming to think about. I didn't know how to expect it. I didn't know that it would be so painful. It was beautiful, and I'm grateful for it, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. But it was very painful because it wasn't what I expected people liking me or people saying nice things because that hadn't been my experience for over a decade. So, you know, I was basically channeling the light that these students gave in a very dark place in time. And that light brought out some of the worst critters of the night. And before you knew it, I had people coming to board meetings and you can guess what they were saying. It was the the groomer storyline that somehow my presence was inappropriate, that I was inappropriate, that my very presence was sexual, um, that I was harming students. They had no evidence other than that I existed and I wasn't ashamed of the fact that I was gay. And I, by this point, had to get lawyers who advised that I say nothing. Um, so I didn't say anything. Those attacks then moved to social media. Uh, I live in a tiny town, so, you know, mm. When things mm-hmm. are shared hundreds of times, it's scary. And then those attacks actually started being targeted towards the actual students themselves. They started saying at these meetings that these students or ex-students of mine were groomers, um, that they were sexualizing younger students. They started naming them at board meetings. They started mm-hmm. sharing pictures of my ex-students at their places of business, at their after-school jobs. And these are minors, right? I mean, these are kids under 18. They, they could have been at 18, uh, but yet they were kids either way. Yeah, right? right. And what they were saying about these kids, though, they were saying about minors. They were saying that mm-hmm. these uh, kids who were in this group were, were harming other younger kids. I begged the school to please say something nice about them, to do anything. Um, the, the parents of those students asked the school to please do something. Uh, in fact, one father wrote simply, they're calling the teacher of the year a pedophile, do something. Mm-hmm. And the school chose absolute silence. I, mm-hmm. I was told if I felt scared, I should call the police. Mm-hmm. And the result was that it was an untenably dangerous situation for me and my students. And I chose to leave education because one, I didn't want them to see a broken man as the only image of queerness that they got to see. And two, I worried that my presence was now making them unsafe. Right. Not because of me, but because how others would respond and because of the cowardice of my administrators. Was the book of poetry written as a response to this? Or had these the poems that are in your book there and this experience sort of you, you decided to go ahead and, and publish? You know, I can't overemphasize how little control I felt over this book starting. Mm. I actually sat down to write an angry email to my superintendent, and I had written him many, many angry emails (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, we were treating these kids like political pawns. We were sacrificing queer children in the name of politics. His one response to me was, we can't get involved every time someone has a complaint about the school. Hmm. It's a pretty weak water response when yeah. calling a child a pedophile. So 
I sat down to write the email and I wrote the first poem hmm. and had no idea I was going to be writing it. And it felt cathartic to be sure, but it felt almost holy. I didn't like, like there were, I was connecting to something I didn't know was there. And I found that there was a child in me, I think a child who had been safe at school, who had been comfortable at school, who had felt like he was being cared for, uh, and a child for whom most of the world was hostile, who saw school now attacking children, the one place they should be safe. And I think he couldn't be quiet anymore, and he wanted to talk. So the writing of this book was me letting him talk. You know, after that first one, was it kind of like a, you know, a floodgate open where they just kind of, you know, then they all came out? I don't think I planned a single one. I got up every morning and just sat down and whatever he was wanting to write, I let him write. And it very much was that there was a kid. Sometimes I would literally see a line and I don't know how to describe it because I don't think I'm separate from my inner child. Obviously, whatever contained being I am, you know, he's a part of it. But I would see sentences written down and think, "Ooh, that's that's awfully big and sentimental. What if I and I would go to edit it and I could feel him. I could feel him opposing me. I could Hmm. feel him saying, don't erase me. Everyone erased me. And I wouldn't erase it. I would just let him speak. Uh, So it was very much that. So why did you decide to write this as a book of poetry rather than a memoir? I mean, I know with that first poem, it came out of, you know, you wanting to write an angry letter to your superintendent. It came out in the form of a poem. But then was it a conscious decision then to just continue to write them as poems? Or did you consider writing it in a different form? You know, um, I hadn't even thought about this question until Kevin Nance uh, asked me if I had intentionally tried to write some of these from a very sweet perspective, was what he said. Um, he said, you, you write about the same sort of topics I write about sometimes, but you, you come at them from an angle that is um, very sweet. I'll use his word again. And I thought, I haven't even thought about it. I didn't even think about these as sweet because I was angry as mm-hmm. I was writing them. <laughs> but I think poetry worked in this particular case better because this, I'll, I'll take a good example. Uh, one of the poems, Cornmeal and Water Pancakes. It's on the surface, a poem about poverty. It's about not having enough food to eat. But when I was six years old, I didn't understand systemic poverty. I didn't understand, nor could I articulate what sort of hyper market capitalism had created the circumstances that meant that some kids have food and some kids didn't. All I felt was that my mom was magical. I was aware that there were few ingredients, but I wasn't aware that we were poor. Not yet. And I think a memoir necessarily wants to filter those past experiences through a modern understanding to sort of add some weight to it, or if not weight, some perspective, some 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 light uh, shining. But I think I wanted to let those experiences be what they were as they were at the time, as best as I could. And I think poetry lends itself to to that sort of articulation, and it lends itself to allowing the kid to express something better than no more. I know when I was reading your, your poetry, you know, I was like, poetry is the perfect form for this, the way you express things. But then there was a part of me that's like, but I want to know more. 
So maybe that that can be your next act, you know, take this and turn it into a longer memoir just to oh. satisfy the readers like me who are like, oh, but I want more. Oh, and to satisfy uh, me as well is <laughs> definitely it's one of the projects I want to do. I want to dig into this idea of what teaching is and what grooming supposedly is uh, and what my life experience has been that sort of led me uh, to to want more than anything in the world to teach mm-hmm. and why we're turning on it. Yeah. Well, let's circle back to the the poetry. It, there's a lot of stuff that your poetry touches on. So one of the ideas is that as a boy, you didn't necessarily enjoy the same things that other boys did. So your first poem, Minnie Mouse Toy, is about that. But in, in other poems, you have this juxtaposition of your brother that speaks to how you were different. So you, you talked about the cathartic nature of writing these poems, but was that something that in terms of that juxtaposition, did you need that, you know, to see these other boys or did even without them, did you always know that you were just unique? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the funny thing is, and I go back to that first poem that I didn't know I was going to write. I think it bubbled to the surface because there was a little boy inside of me who already was weird and different from everyone else. But if he had fully articulated that weirdness or that difference, he wouldn't have survived it. Mm. And he chose silence so that I could be here, you know? And I think a lot about what I owe him. I think a lot about how much he sort of sacrificed so that I could make it. And when I think about the fact that that was the poem he wanted to write, I think that it's ultimately the same thing happening. You know, adults attacking me for existing and, and finding some ways to attach something evil or awful to me because of who I love is exactly what was happening to him with a Minnie Mouse toy. Mm. He loved something, he found beauty in it, and through no fault of his own, was placed in a society that hated him for it. I love my husband and that's the end of that. Then through no fault of my own, I'm hated for it. Uh, so I think it's almost impossible for him to articulate himself without other boys coming in to play. And I think probably he carries, I carry, you know, a complex bunch of emotions, right? On the one hand, I wanted desperately for these other boys to love me. Uh, on the other hand, I needed to love myself and doing that meant rejecting them. And so I think there's also just the, the anger of watching other boys sort of be violent, lack emotion, be cruel and be praised for it. Mm. Uh, And to sort of see myself hated while doing none of those things. I think, justice is also an important concept that sort of drove that little boy to keep on existing because he wanted some sense of it at some point in his life. Another topic that you explore in a lot of your poems, and we've touched on this just a little bit, are the poems that where you talk about your family's poverty. And many of those poems, including a couple of my favorites, Cornmeal and Water Pancakes and Neckbones, touch on this. 
And in neck bones, you talk about the food that your mamaw made you and that, you know, most people would consider it poor people food. But for you, your mamaw made it with such love and it's a source of comfort. And I'm always fascinated by the way food is more than just food and, and literature and, and things like that. And uh, it has a larger meaning than just like the calories we put into our bodies. So f- what does the food in your poems mean to you? I could probably and probably should write an entire book of <laughs> <laughs> what food means to me. But it's my earliest memories that exist on planet Earth are of my mom making breakfast, uh, which every single morning was biscuits, gravy, fried eggs. And one, it was magical just to see things transformed. And two, she taught me so much. One of the first memories I have of actively sort of metacognitively understanding something was my mom teaching me that you can't mess up gravy. So (laughs) she would intentionally put too much flour in it or not enough flour in it or showing that she was out of milk. But anytime she didn't have an ingredient, she would show me how to make up for it. And I think what she really wanted me to see is whatever life gives you, you're going to be okay. So you have two ingredients, make your pancakes. So you don't have water and you don't have flour. Let's make gravy. (laughs) And I've seen my mother make water cornmeal gravy. And I carry that lesson. I think especially for Appalachians, and probably for a lot of other groups too, but using very little and turning it into something that someone would want is uh, an important part of how food works. And also knowing that being able to do that sort of magic, that manipulation um, is something that you have to learn from someone else. It's a skill that you can carry with you, that you can take wherever you are. and And it translates into so many other parts of my life. Would it be okay if I read a little passage from Neckbones that I think speaks perfectly to this and is one of my favorite passages in the, in the whole collection of poems? Would that be okay? More than okay. You're, I think, believe you're talking about your mammal and you say, morning or evening, biscuits or beans, everything she made was covered in gravy or sauce because both surround everything until it becomes part of something bigger since love is enveloping and everyone knows that in the mountains – Homemade gravy is love. It gives me chills, you know, just reciting it. That encapsulates what you were just saying in a nutshell. Thank you. You know, even as you were reading it, I had a memory just sort of pop into my head of my uh, friend Rhonda's mom, who she left an abusive relationship. They had a double wide, but no electricity yet. And I spent the night over there to help them do stuff to set up the, the trailer when I was in high school and I got up the next morning and there was gravy on the stove. I remember thinking like, how does her mom even make gravy? There's not even electricity, <laughs> but I didn't want to ask because I didn't want to embarrass her depending upon whatever she had done to make it. But I, mean, that, I think that's how she was going to show her love for us helping. So how, how did poverty as a kid alter the way that you view the world now? You know, I think, In a couple of different ways. One, I didn't think of myself as poor until I learned to look at myself through other people's eyes. Mm. And there's good and bad to that. You know, on the one hand, I think we have to acknowledge the poverty that exists in Appalachia. We can't avoid the subject. Uh, I know some people don't want to talk about it. I think some people find it too talked about or not talked about in the right ways, and they're right. Um, But I think on the other hand, it helped me understand just how 
people who are in need are just as strong, capable, important as people who aren't. And I think Americans in particular lack this perspective. We tend to, whether we are comfortable saying this out loud or not, see homeless people as something slightly less than people, as seeing poor people as something slightly less than people, uh, as seeing them as burdens. When my experience is the most intelligent people I've yet to meet in my life came from Appalachia. And I know that because I I heard them speak. I heard the musicality in, in, in their language. I heard the, the complexity in their arguments. I knew their ability to take the resources available to them and do fantastic and beautiful things. And I can't but now look at my students and remind myself that whatever I'm seeing is a shell of their depth. And all too often in schools, I think for expediency, right? There's, there's so many students to care for in this country. I think teachers sort of look at them, size them up and make decisions. And I make it a point to try everything in me not to do that. Uh, instead, to, to find ways to get them to show me those things that they haven't been able to show yet or been asked to show yet. Literal voice is so important in your collection that your poem hard to take seriously is about when you'd work so hard for a speech competition, but the judge said he couldn't take you seriously with an accent like yours. Mm -hmm. And then in bluegrass moon, you talk about being a teacher to young people who use words like ain't and might should. And you write that you begin to wonder what the point is of teaching classic literature if if the young people you were teaching never read books that use their own diction. So other Appalachian writers have, have talked about this, not to be embarrassed by the way a person speaks. So why was it important for you to address the prejudice against the way somebody sounds, the accent in, in your poetry? You know, good liberal people made it a point, at least by the late 90s, to start saying that it was okay to be gay. So maybe I didn't get that message in my immediate surroundings, but I certainly knew from television there were people who would see me as worthy of respect. That did not exist for me as an Appalachian. My mom, like many other people, carried deep shame about how she spoke. She would be afraid to even go to Lexington for fear that someone would mock her, and people mock. Uh, I've seen it multiple times in my life. So I've wrote that for the people in the blue states mainly because I, I have met so many progressive people who are absolutely ignorant when it comes to language. Mm. And it was a very real fear that I carried as a kid. My voice doesn't sound nearly as Appalachian as it did when I was a kid, mainly because I'm a linguist or I taught English in France and spoke with a British accent for a year. <laughs> <laughs> Students had only ever uh, heard British English, and I gave up trying to talk to them. <laughs> so my accent has definitely shifted. But it's, it's important to remind, especially queer kids, too, that they don't have to be something else. Mm. That's the narrative that that we teach queer kids. If you want to survive, go out to the cities, erase. That's part of yourself that I'm proud of. I'm proud of where I come from. I'm proud of the the union building that my papa did. I'm proud of the work ethic of my 
mom and my dad. I'm proud uh, that they were coal miners. I'm proud of this language that we speak that, in my opinion, is absolutely beautiful. So I want to, to bring that kind of pride into the national conversation. Uh, one of the things I used to love to do when I taught French is draw parallels to Appalachian English. And there are some concepts that are intuitive to the kids who spoke. And I taught Montgomery County, so it was always sort of an even split whose family was more central Kentucky and whose was more uh, eastern Kentucky because we were right in the gateway region. Uh, one one example is there's a, a an article in French, pas de, that you use to mean something that doesn't really exist but theoretically could. Standard English doesn't have this at all, so we would just say uh. But in Appalachian English, you can say no. Like, I ain't got no pizza. So there, the pizza never existed. It's theoretical. But you say, like, I don't like pizza. You would never say, I don't like no pizza. That doesn't even make sense grammatically, right? Mm -hmm. So I would introduce the French and say, here's how the rules work in French. It's identical to Appalachian. So if you would say no, say pas de. And then so some of the kids could immediately grasp it, and then some could. Uh, And it was a reminder to the kids that there is a grammar in Appalachian English. Well, many of your social posts recently have been focused on book censorship and, you know, the poems in your collection address the difference that good teachers made in your life and the difference that you tried to make for your students. So how do some of these new laws, do you, I mean, do you feel like they hurt the teacher-student relationship? Oh, for sure. Hucky's laws are among the worst in the country. Senate Bill 150 is probably the worst that's been written yet. What all of these do is they're written with ambiguity so that teachers are scared to do anything. And what that's going to do is lead to the erasure of any reference to LGBTQ people existing. And what all the research shows is that what keeps these kids alive is feeling like someone cares that they exist. Above 60% of LGBTQ teens consider suicide in the last year. A single affirming adult cuts that number in half. An affirming adult placed in an affirming community drops that number to the same as non-LGBTQ students. So we've just enshrined in law the sorts of conditions that are going to cause suicidality to more than double. If you look at Senate Bill 1 from the 2021 legislative session, that bill makes it very hard to teach black or brown uh, literature without teachers getting in trouble. The directive at the school that I worked at was don't teach anything racial. Mm. And I know from experience what it's like to sit in a room and only read about other people and never Mm. get whether we're talking about me as an Appalachian person or as a queer person. And now we're extending that onto black students and brown students. I think it's, it's, it's very harmful. And the new laws that allow any parent to complain, <laughs> you know, complaints are good. We need those in society, but we have to have some sort of leveled, reasonable response. And at no point before this time period did we say the worst parent gets to make the most decisions because okay. that's what we're doing now. Um, Senate Bill 5, 2022, basically affirms the ability of any given parent to have material removed. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on schools to justify keeping it if a parent wants it removed. The effect is, think about the worst parent in a district. And I, I'm, I'm 
I'm using that word intentionally. There's a growing KKK force in Montgomery and Rowan counties. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has identified them. They've been they've been handing out pamphlets. So those are people with kids in the schools. Those people can complain about any book and they get to decide what the curriculum is. We just handed our curriculum over to the KKK um, and willingly we're doing it. I don't think it takes a whole lot of effort to think about what happens to your kids when those are the people who are controlling things. Yeah. Stuff. Well, you've also been working with young people's groups. It Gets Better Project out of Lexington and the Rainbow Library. On your Instagram profile, you describe yourself as an activist, queer, and a writer. And I'm wondering if you think being an activist is separate from being a writer or are writers by nature of their work activists? Such a good question. And I would I would love to hear lots of other uh, <laughs> on it. For me... I think for any writer, you want to add to the universe, right? There's there's something that's not being articulated or that hasn't been articulated or that you need others or want others to feel or see or experience in, in some way. And I think that insistence on articulation necessarily means you want things to be different. And that's activism in my mind. Whether you're I don't know, coming at things from a conservative standpoint and want to squash other people's voices. So you write a Kirk Cameron style book about that or whether you're coming from my perspective and you want to lift up other people's voices. For me, I I think the two can't really be separated. There's a part of me that at first wanted to keep these things separate and because it sometimes the way for me to do the most conversation is to do events around my book, because then I can talk about queer youth. The, the, the best advocacy we can do in 2023 is affirm that they exist. Then I feel this sort of tinge of guilt, like, oh, I'm profiting off of talking about these things, but not really. I think I want my life's work to be talking about queer youth and, and keeping them safe as long as we can. And so if writing gets us there and that's the best way I can find to make conversations for now, uh, then I'll certainly be doing that. I think that's a good answer. I don't know the answer to that question. I kind of think they go hand in hand, being an activist and being a writer. So I I agree with everything that you said. (laughs) So I'm wondering, what kind of books do you like to read? What kind of books are in your wheelhouse? Um, I am an equal opportunity reader. I love anything weird. I think I, Netflix would say that I love poignant stories with a strong female lead. <laughs> but, uh, I, I did not grow up even imagining what the world could be like in, in all of its goodness. I didn't imagine what queer people were going to be able to accomplish. Uh, I think the the sort of scaffold that I allowed myself to have was women um, because I did not grow up seeing a lot of women who were strong. I saw a lot of women who I desperately wanted to see use their voice. Those times when my mom was able to use her voice best uh, are the times that I was most proud of her. So I immediately latched on to you know books like The Awakening that show women in their struggle and in their strength. What about audiobooks? Are you an audiobook listener? Oh, for sure. Um, not as much as I want to be. There was a time period when I would listen to audiobooks on my way to work uh, and back. I, I had a 60-mile commute two-way, so 120 miles a day. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> listen to the entire Twilight <laughs> series. <laughs> 
um, and loved that. Um, I don't know the name of the narrator, but she was fantastic. I would literally sit in my parking spot at work and refuse to go into the building because I just had to figure out what was happening next. <laughs> I don't know if, if reading it on my own would have had the same effect. My favorite audiobook I've listened to like four times is Sally Field doing Alice in Wonderland. Oh. So good. She has the perfect voice for it. She does all the voices? Yes, she does all the voices. And it's somehow fun and motherly and a little irreverent all at the same time. It's really good. Um, mm. The Jasper Ford series. Um, oh, Susan yeah. Guerdon did those. And uh, it's so well done. I think those are also best listened to because you. You know, if, if I'm reading a book, I can excitedly push myself quickly. But, and you know, and those books deal with time and excitement already. So something about being forced to slow down adds to the, the enjoyment. Well, Amy has very particular feelings about audiobooks. So you're, you're giving her some that <laughs> I, I can are, tell yeah. she's getting very excited about <laughs> mm-hmm. this. So, all right. Well, Willie, we're going to take a, a quick break. When we come back... We're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Willie Carver, the author of Gay Poems for Red States. And of course, Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? Well, I recently finished a book that is now in your possession it's oh yes 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 said Mm -hmm. that i get dibs on talking about it so the book is called what moves the dead by t kingfisher and this is a short it's like a novella it's a reimagining of poe's the fall of the house of usher so if you haven't read that story or if it's been a really long time since you've read that story i recommend you reread it before you read what moves the dead because it adds to your appreciation. So in the story by T. Kingfisher, rather than the narrator being a man, the narrator is a female soldier named Alex who visits her longtime friends, Madeline and Roderick Usher. And both, as in the Poe story, both are clearly unwell. While in Poe's story, it's never clear what disease affects Madeline, what moves the dead makes it abundantly clear so there really isn't that that issue of 19th century people couldn't always tell if someone was actually dead or not at play <laughs> that is in play in Poe's story. So I don't want to say too much about it because if you, you know, I mean, they're very similar, but Kingfisher expands. I will say if you've read the book Mexican Gothic and you liked it, then you will enjoy this novella. and. T. Kingfisher in the afterword actually talks about how she was like, well, I know Mexican Gothic's already out there, but I want to write this anyway. So there's a lot of similarities between them. So Hmm. anyway, highly recommend. It's short, so you could probably finish it in a day if you wanted to. What Moves the Dead by T. Kingfisher. I really like the stuff that she writes. Yeah. All right, Willie. What have you been up to in terms of your reading life? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I've got like a, a, a book by my bed, a book by the 
couch. <laughs> my ADHD basically means if I have to pause a show for my husband to go to the bathroom, I have to start reading. I, like everyone else, I'm reading Demon Copper. Oh, yeah. Love it so far. I'm about halfway through. I won't touch drug abuse as a topic. I'm just not there emotionally yet. I know that whatever I think right now is incomplete. And I know that we're whatever any of us think is always incomplete, but I'm very incomplete. <laughs> um, but I think, I think she's doing it justice. Um, and I'm excited to see where this goes. Brian Fuchs, Theoretical Tiger Society. It's a collection of poetry. It undoes the world. I love poetry that is causing me to have like, physiological reactions that I don't understand. That's sort of lurking deep and under, and he certainly is. George L. Alliance uh, with a hammer for my heart. I'm about, I don't know, 60 pages into that, and it's breathtaking and shocking that she wrote it in the 90s because it feels so current. I was kind of frustrated to think that I went to a college, a four-year university in Eastern Kentucky, and no one assigned me a George L. Alliance novel. Because she writes poetry too, doesn't she? Or maybe I'm... Just beautiful poetry. Okay. Um, and I had no idea she wrote novels. But yeah, this is about a woman who sees God at church and God is a woman uh, who she calls Mother Jesus. And it's so far really about the, the effect of a woman speaking her truth uh, against a world that what that effect has on her family and on her and their relationships with the people around them uh, in Eastern Kentucky. And it's also about her granddaughter who is desperate to go to college and trying to figure out how to make that happen. And Mm -hmm. obviously the two, the two storylines are sort of merging, at least in terms of theme. And it's really I think it, it's, it's a beautiful book to, to cause the reader to think about the ways we limit each other and the ways we oppose uh, specifically women with dreams. Hmm. Sounds good. Well, Amy. Well, I, I recently read a foodie memoir. In this case, it's a memoir, I guess, that it's sort of chronological, but sort of food essays too. This one's called Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator and How That's a Dumb Way to Live by Dan Adut. Dan Adut is a comedian and actor, although I'd never really heard of him before reading this book. He, he's he been in some things like Cobra Kai. I've never seen that show. I was just reading this because it was a, a foodie memoir. So the the premise of this book is that basically from the moment that Dan bonded with his father over fine dining cuisine, he was constantly on the search for the best food and food-related experiences. Some boys bond with their fathers over baseball. For Dan, it was fine dining. And for him, it was he's sort of admiring it as an art form. He's intellectualizing it almost in a way. Uh, and so he is a foodie to the extreme. He lived to eat. But through these essays, you learn that his fandom of fine food was not always just a healthy hobby. So there are three things that I really enjoyed about this book. First of all, this book is funny. And, you know, when I was saying, you know, I love a foodie memoir, I also love a comedy memoir. So this sort of combines the two. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like, it's not funny in a hysterical kind of way, but it was light, it was amusing, and it was good natured. Second thing is Dan is from an Iranian Jewish family, and that's a little unusual, right? Like we don't necessarily think about there being Jews in Iran. 
but they were Persian, which is an ethnic group in Iran, and it's united by a common language called Farsi. I didn't really know much about this. It's a very different culture than you think of from Islamic Iranians, but I really enjoyed learning about that culture uh, and their food. And then the third thing is that even though this was light and funny, it also addressed some subjects that were a little more serious. There were essays on how he learned to appreciate hunting game, even though it made him feel guilty at first for taking an animal's life, about how when he met some of his foodie idols, they turned out to be pretty bad people, Um, how his obsession with food ruined some of his romantic relationships for kind of stupid reasons, and then eventually how becoming a Meals on Wheels delivery driver helped save him. So this was a light read for me between some other heavier books, but I appreciated it for that. And if you're a person who's looking for more podcasts to listen to and you like food podcasts, Dan Adut has apparently the most popular food podcast out there right now. It's called Green Eggs and Dan, which I think is a really cute title. Uh, And his first question that he asks all of his guests is what's in your fridge? And they actually take a picture and send it to him. And that's how their conversation starts from there. And he, he does talk to some foodie people, but he also talks to actors and comedians and all types of, of different people uh, in that podcast. Again, the name of the book is Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator and How That's a Dumb Way to Live by Dan Adut. Hmm. So while you were talking about that, I looked him up and this must have been a show I watched with my kids at some point. It was, I think, on Disney. It was. Oh, did you know him as Falafel Phil? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> he has a whole thing about that. Yeah. Falafel Phil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He hated that role and he didn't want to do it because he thought that it was a stereotype mm. for, for Middle Eastern people. But he also had a job, you know, right, and so right. you got to pay you know, the bills. Right. Yeah. I never watched that show with my kids, but people who, what was the name of the show? It was called Kicking It. Yeah. He was a major character in that show, yeah. if you have kids. so Or maybe I just, I don't know. I have a feeling that probably at some point my kids left the room and I just kept watching it. <laughs> but we won't, we won't go there. Well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to do our Fast and the Furious with Willie Carver. But first, fellow book lover, Maiko DiConzo, author of Welcome to the Arcade and Two Nickels, tells us about his most recent five-star read. Hello, everybody. This past June, my daughter got married at uh, at a hotel on the Jersey Shore, and it was it was absolutely wonderful. It was beautiful. Honestly, one of the best days of my life. But like most weddings, it was a little chaotic, and there was a lot of moving pieces. So uh, when we returned home after four days, I wanted to read something that was calm, that was chill that was peaceful, relaxing. And uh, my wife suggested a novel that she had bought me for Father's Day. It was a book that I had always wanted to get to, but for some reason, between reading and writing and living and teaching, it always seemed to slip through the cracks. So at the very beginning of July this year, I finally sat down on my back deck with Rebecca. And my experience was anything, (laughs) anything but calm and peaceful and chill. But it turned out to be the perfect read for the beginning of the summer post-wedding. Last night I I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. That's the haunting opening of this novel. On the surface, the plot is about a young, inexperienced girl 
who remains unnamed through the entire book, which is interesting. And she meets Max de Winter, an older, very wealthy man in Monte Carlo, and they marry and they go to Mandalay and begin their lives together. Okay, it's been described as a gothic romance, but it's a little light on the romance and, and honestly very, very heavy on the gothic. Uh, it's about jealousy, betrayal, illusion, disillusion, sexuality, obsession, and ultimately murder. And every time I thought I knew where DeMornier was going with it, there was a twist that made me rethink everything I'd read previously. And there's also the suggestion of the supernatural. But uh, again, she stops just short. I thought it was absolutely terrific. Five stars and then some. Right, this is Michael D. coming to you from Staten Island, New York. Salute. are back with Willie Carver, author of the book of poetry, Gay Poems for Red States. Willie, are you ready for your fast and furious questions? I am ready. All right. <laughs> Question number one, cornbread or biscuits? I always choose cornbread. My husband thinks it's blasphemy and always <laughs> chooses biscuits. Okay. So Carrie and I were having a discussion about this because she called it corn pone. Do you call it corn pone or cornbread? I can call them both. And if I need to differentiate, cornbread can be sweet and can be leavened, but corn pone usually ain't. Okay. Because I was saying, I thought that cornbread was a more general way to talk about that food item, where corn pone was a little more specific. And yes, that's how I see it. In New England, they sell it like in plastic containers that were baked the day before. And I'm like, do we really need to sell? They also sell biscuits like that. Um, and that for me is definitely cornbread because uh, it was sweet and almost cake. Mm-hmm. Okay. See, yeah. my, my husband's mom and her side of the family, she moved to Louisville from Pikeville when she was mm-hmm. 14. So his grandfather called it corn pone no matter what. Okay. Next question. So you wear great glasses. I love your glasses. Thank but you. after glasses, which is the best fashion accessory? Funky socks or sporty hat? Well, I happen to have good hair. So for me, it's. <laughs> uh, and for a long time, had a, a great collection of fun socks. But I do love a hat. <laughs> All right. So this also, we, we had a lot of discussions about, we were getting semantics here. Which word is better, jaunty or sporty, to describe the hat in the previous question? <laughs> we argued over this. So. <laughs> Okay, so I don't want to dip into scary waters, but <laughs> I think I like sporty only because uh, I like the best word for the job, usually. And uh, if there were something particularly jaunty about a given hat that made it not just sporty, I would like that word. But I think sometimes we're just, uh, this word is boring. Let's find another one. Okay. <laughs> well, see, Amy was like, well... Is he going to think it's a baseball hat? I said, no, I'd call it a baseball hat if I'm in a baseball cap. Sporty is like stylish, you know? And so then I said, okay, well, would you prefer jaunty? And she was like, no, sporty. I'm like, thank you. For what it's worth, I hadn't even thought of sporty as in like. Sports. Yeah. Sports. But I never think in terms of sports. No, I don't either. (laughs) I don't either. Okay, the age-old question, Bugs Bunny or Tom and Jerry? 
Uh, Bugs Bunny for sure, uh, because he was a deviant. <laughs> Bugs Bunny because Tom and Jerry, I think they're your they're just society as it is. Uh, <laughs> never learns its lesson, but just keeps on plugging on. Bugs Bunny is he's in on the game. He gets it, uh, and he makes fun of all of it. He, you know, if, if he's so smart, he could just easily walk away, right? But he wants to stay. He wants to enjoy his his, his three minutes. Uh, so that's why I love him. We both said, when we asked each other, we both said Bugs Bunny. Carrie said it because of the opera. The Valkyrie, right? Of the Valkyries. Yeah. <laughs> I can see Bugs in that little hat. Yes. Uh, yes. For sure. All right. You lived in Vermont for a while before returning to Kentucky. So which do you find more miserable, a really cold, snowy winter or a hot as hell, humid summer? You know, I've learned so much about the context of this question from living in both places. Winter in Vermont is fine because no one leaves the house without being wrapped up from head to toe. So, And it's always snowy and beautiful. Whereas winter in Kentucky is terrible uh, <laughs> because we're never prepared for it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Summer in Kentucky isn't so bad because let's be honest, we're all inside. <laughs> it's going up to go out. Whereas summer in Vermont was horrific because no Why? there's no air conditioning. Oh. Uh, most of the time, I'll say this, most of the time in Vermont, summer is gorgeous and it's like 70 to 85 and you can swim everywhere. But on those days when it's above 90, there is no relief mm. and it's awful. The I will say, I never in Kentucky really think, oh, when will the season be over? But in Vermont, my husband and I decided we were going to go to the lake. It was like late April, early May. And we we knew we weren't going to swim, but we thought at least we'll just go sit by the water in a pair of shorts. And the lake was still frozen. (laughs) (laughs) And I definitely wanted winter to be over. (laughs) I always learn something with these fast and furious questions, that's for sure. Well, Willie, thanks so much for joining us today. I I do want to put a plug in. At some point, please write a a longer whatever about your mom, because I loved your mom in Gay Poems for Red State. So I'd love to read more about your mom, you know, just if you need ideas. Thank you. Well, I've had two um, speaking events in Eastern Kentucky. One one was in Moorhead, but one was in Southeastern Kentucky in Hazard. And my mom came to that one and awesome. she spoke first and she had everyone transfixed. They were all in love with her. Aww. She sounds That's like nice. a wonderful lady. And you are, are a, a fantastic person to chat with. So she did a good job. So kudos, Thank mom. Thank you. Thank you both. You can find Willie Carver on Instagram at Willie Carver Jr. or on his website at WillieCarver.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at PerksOfBeingABookLover.com. We're also on Instagram at PerksOfBeingABookLoverPod and on Facebook at PerksOfBeingABookLover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to message us about what you think of the show or you want to tell us about a new book that you're loving, you can always find us on our website and send us a message from there. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live, or in archives at forwardradio.org.